When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's the Bomber Brothers Podcast with Ryan and Sean Chichester. Swung on and driven to deep left. For the line, she is gone. Aaron Judge, line run right down the line. Swung on and line to right center field. It is a base hit. Grounding third, scoring Tyner from left off. And the Yankees win the ball game with two in the bottom of the ninth. Hit in the air to left center. It is high. It is far. It is gone. It's a grand slam. Oh, a Stantonian home run. Talking all things Yankees baseball. All right, welcome everybody. We've got the final episode of the Bomber Brothers podcast before the All-Star break. Sean and Ryan recapping the final series before the All-Star break. And it was a, it was a good one. The Yankees went out with a bang. It started with what I personally thought was the most maddening loss of the uh, entire season. I think you can argue there have been worse losses, but to me that one was the most frustrating. The uh series opening loss and extra innings to the Red Sox but as the best teams in baseball tend to do they answered right back they outscored the Red Sox 17 to 3 in the next two games to to take the series and essentially all but bury the Red Sox in, in the American League East they're 16 and a half out now going into the break so Sean I think we or I at least feel a whole lot different about the Yankees going into the break as I might have if the break happened two or three days ago you know, I saw um, Randy Wilkins, who, for all our listeners, we're going to play an interview after we talk about this Red Sox series with Randy, talking about his project, The Captain. Um, so make sure you stick around for that. But I saw him tweet after the loss on Friday that he wants to see how this team bounces back from adversity, and it's good that they're going to face adversity. And I agree with you. I thought Friday was the most frustrating loss of the season, for sure. Maybe not the worst, but definitely most frustrating. And I think the other three all came within the last week too, like the two last games at Fenway and then two of the games against the Reds. I think we've had a lot of bad losses this week. And I think even I was starting to get a little bit like, is the glass slipper cracking? Is this team kind of like Cinderella? And then we saw how they responded to that adversity and they just beat the tar out of the Red Sox for two games straight um, tons of great things to, to take out of it. But, um, you know, when you, when you have a loss, like you have on Friday, you burn through all of your best bullpen guys. Um, you're, you're kind of like, Oh crap, we got Tyone going on Saturday and he really hasn't been, been throwing the ball too well. Um, you know, the, the Red Sox were running out. Um, uh, I'm sorry, who were they pitching on Saturday? Uh, who's, who's been solid, you know, um, it didn't really look great for, for a series win and uh, props to props to Tyone because he pitched a great game and it was awesome to see him get back on track. Yes. And yeah, good, good point. Good note. We are uh, talking to Randy Wilkins this episode. So absolutely stick around for that. We talked to him all about the captain, the seven part documentary series on Derek Jeter that releases right after the home run derby on Monday night. Sean and I saw part one already. It is fantastic. And from everything we've seen on Twitter and online, everything else from those who have seen past episode one say it's just as good. If not, it gets even better than that. So we're certainly uh, in for a treat with that with that documentary. But it's going to be even more enjoyable to watch coming off this this series win. It's nice to go into a break knowing you don't have to kind of fester on, you know, what's going to happen next. Like, how are the Yankees going to bounce back? Is Are they going to you know, I don't think there's really any worry from me, at least, of the division slipping away if they had fallen into a deep losing streak before the break. But there could have been a lingering concern of like, oh, are they are they going to allow this to at least be interesting to the point where they, um, you know, are falling out of a potential spot as one of the top two division winners and playing in a wild card series or anything like that. But those were put, put to rest pretty, pretty emphatically. And you mentioned, I think one of the most promising aspects of this series win, and that was Tyone. He 
gave up the home run to Devers. And then what was it? He retired 17 in a row after that. He was, I mean, he bounced back in a big, big way after posting an ERA of almost seven over his last few starts. So huge from Tyone. And then another, I thought another big one, which wasn't as dire, I think, because we all know who he is, but judge broke out of his slump in a huge way. Two home runs on Saturday, went two for three with two runs scored today as we record on Sunday. And then just Matt Carpenter, man. I mean, that I I think he has the argument for maybe the coolest story in, in baseball right now. I think the Yankees have had two of the coolest stories in baseball this season. I mean, earlier in the year, it was Nestor. I think he was all, an awesome story. And now you have Carpenter, a 36-year-old who was just about ready to hang it up and, and give up his career and spend time with his family. Lindsey Adler had a, a great article about him in The Athletic today, just talking about where he's been and like the low he reached in his career to the point where, you know, we all know the story. He was terrible with St. Louis those last couple of years, couldn't find his swing that had previously made him an MVP candidate. And here he is with, I think the highest OPS in baseball since he signed with the Yankees in late May. So it just gets even cooler for him. Two home runs yesterday, curtain call, and just, it's, uh, it's awesome. Love watching him right now. You could see in the post-game interview yesterday, Saturday night, uh, he got emotional when they when they talked to him about getting a curtain call. And and it was great to see. I mean, I when he hit the second home run, I just started laughing, man. I mean, what 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 else can you say? He's been incredible. And you know, the Yankees have been uh not playing their best ball uh going, you know, up up through Friday. And and he's really helped them to a couple wins here along the way. He's he's been absolutely incredible. And what a great story. And that that's a great call out too. Um, Saturday, it felt like a turn the page game, like, okay, enough. Like, I don't know. I, I know it doesn't work that way, like where teams just say that, but sometimes you get the mojo back, you get your confidence back is what it is. And it felt like uh, Saturday could have been one of those games for judge um, because he comes back Sunday and, and, you know, has a multi-hit game. And then you, you get, um, you know, the huge performance from Carpenter, and then tie on with the, with the bounce back. So I, I thought that was, that was excellent on Saturday and then to come back on Sunday and do almost the same exact thing, uh, you know, 13 to two game, not quite as impressive as 14 to one, but still really good. But that game had a much different tone because of what happens in the first inning where Hicks, who um, also had a multi-hit game on Sunday. So nice to see him back off the, the leg injury. Um you know, he, he rockets a ball off of sales finger, which shoots into right field. And if a ball's ricocheting off of you at 114 miles an hour or whatever it was and going into right field, it's probably not good. And it looks like he broke his finger. So that was kind of a weird start to the game. And the Yankees capitalized, um, you know, by the time they got into the um, bullpen for the Red Sox and, and in the fourth inning, they finally found a pitcher that they could feast on and, you know, had an eight run fourth inning. Um, and, and, you know, Cole gave up a two run homer to Jeter downs and, and that was it. He managed to handle, um, his nemesis, which was exciting. Oh, that three was, today. Definitely. yeah, that was something that we were, I think we were all keyed in on and he definitely gave him a buzz early on and, and then he went to work. So it was nice to see, uh, the last two games, them kind of come back and get some of that mojo back. Uh, so I, I thought definitely a high point going into the break, uh, after some, some troubling weeks here, but, uh, you know. We're all very, I mean, I'm very fickle, so I'm going to all-star, I'm going to home run derby and the all-star game feeling good. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned Cole shutting down Devers. Uh, he had two hits in the series, four RBI total in the series. So he still did his damage, including the two homers. Yeah. Home, yeah. Both, both of them home runs and Jeter downs named after Derek Jeter, first career home run at Yankee stadium, blah, blah, blah. That was about the only highlight for the Red Sox the last two days. Um, but again, I think it's big to end like this just because of the nature of some of the Yankees' recent losses when they had gone on that five out of six stretch. stretch. I mean, losing a series to the Reds. And then just the way they lost on Friday was absolutely brutal. I mean, bases loaded, no out. They look poised for another walk-off win, which would have been, what, their 13th, I think, already this season. And you're just kind of waiting for it. They get the break on the throwing error on what was an absolutely dreadful bunt by IKF. It couldn't have been worse, but the throw to throw to third was terrible. And then Trevino with a hard double play, 
DJ bounces back to the mound. Then they load the bases again with one out an inning later. Nothing, nothing to show for it. Then it looks like King's about to get out of the 11th and give the Yankees another chance to win. And it bounces a one-two pitch that trickles just far away from Trevino, that Bogarts, who was heads up that whole inning. I mean, tagging up to yeah. third on the deep fly ball, then stealing home on that. I mean, that was, man, what a terrible, terrible loss. That was so frustrating to watch. And, uh, but yeah, it, it feels like a distant memory now. It, it does. But I mean, I think it's important. We, we think about kind of how that game went, because if you're going to throw King anyway, why are you giving chat, giving Chapman a high leverage inning in the, in, in the seventh? Like well, that, I, think, I think Boone has kind of shown that he's not giving up on Chapman yet in terms of using him in high leverage spots. I just think that's the way it's going to go. I, I think, and you know, I guess to Boone's credit and to the Yankees credit as a whole, they've kind of awarded themselves the luxury of, of doing that. Like you are in first place by 13 games. You can try to get Chapman in these higher leverage spots to try to unlock who he (sighs) used to be. I personally don't think it's really there anymore. And he's just going to give me a heart attack every time anyway, but I mean, more power to Boone for being able to calmly do that because I'd be freaking out. I already am as a fan. So uh, no, I I personally don't want to see him in those yeah. spots, but that's the only sense I can make of it. Yeah, you could have had, you know, today or or yesterday, you know, big big leads. You could have gotten him some work then, like they did for Loizaga today. Uh, he did strike out too, but he also gave up two hits. Um, Got to be honest, at that point, it was uh, my niece's birthday party. I was I was not tuned in when it was thirteen to two in the ninth, so I don't know how he looked, but. I don't um, know. I was on the golf course. I had John nice. on the, uh, the other thing too, that really frustrated me from a strategic standpoint on Friday, why Donaldson pinch hitting there is beyond me. I, I, I like Marwin better in that spot with the runner on second. Cause Donaldson's a right-handed hitter with a ton of swing and miss in his game. I, I just, I, I don't understand why, why swung, uh, swung through took, a hanging slider yeah he got great pitches to hit that's for sure i i would have trusted marwin to at least pull one and get the runner over to third but it wasn't to be and i, I that, that was frustrating a frustrating part for me too once that happened i was like this is no good and you know even in the in, in the explosion in, in the middle game of the series you know donaldson only went one for five and struck out three times yeah, we've what was it this time last week after the mm-hmm. series at Fenway? We were talking about how Donaldson's power stroke might be back. He hit the grand slam. He yanked the three-run homer all over the monster, and man, he just has gone right back into the pit. So I think that was a little premature of me, at least, because I was saying maybe it was Same. back. Because a lot of his underlying numbers, again, a lot of them were looking good, but like you said, the swing and miss is just a huge part of his game right now and a huge factor in how much he's struggling because he. He hasn't just been missing like like you like we just said. I mean, he's missing some hangers, some fat pitches to hit, some mistakes, and he's just swinging right through them. And then you take into account the fact that he had the split fingernail too. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I I don't even want to see Donaldson up when he's not pinch hitting. It's just in the lineup. But with the way that Lemayhu and I mean, I know Torres didn't. You know, he had a he was what over five today, which whatever he was off the day before. But he Torres has been been really good again lately. Frankly, I think Torres might, might deserve to be on the all-star team. Uh, oh, absolutely, and, yeah. And LeMay, who's playing out of his mind, there's no room for Donaldson right now. I'm sorry. You you, you have to keep the DH for either uh, Stanton or or Carpenter. And, you know, that yeah, Hicks is fine to, to play in, in the outfield and judge. And, and there's, no, there's no room for Donaldson. You can't DH him. You can't play him at third. There's no room. Um Tim LaCastro probably, by the way, maybe more deserving to be on the roster than Gallo right now. <laughs> but of course, like I- I'm thinking that, and then Gallo hits a two-run homer into the second deck. So, um, yeah, you know, we'll that's see. the that's we'll the Manning Park because you know it's yeah. there. It's there, right? But uh, I don't know. Maybe they're going to trade Matt Carpenter for Juan Soto. I don't know if the Yankees should do that at this point, to be honest. <laughs> Can you uh, well, I mean, Heyman said the Yankees and Mets are both in on Soto. Yes. Now I yeah. think the Yankees are more likely to be able to give up a little bit less because it's not in the division as it would be for, or even in the league. Uh, if the Yankees could get him that could you imagine if they sign judge to an extension and then go and trade for Soto? I don't even need you to give Soto the mega contract because you have him for what? Two and a half years. 
Yeah, he's a free agent in 2025. And he's... go Empty the farm, go get Soto and Castillo. And then for the next two years, we're just going to be loving it. Yeah, so I'm going to get angry now for a second because I've yeah. already I've already seen people online and on Twitter saying, oh, well, we can't give up Volpe or we can't give up the Martian. You give up all of them for Soto. Volpe, Dominguez, Peraza, all of their ceilings, all of their absolute best possible outcomes aren't even what Juan Soto is. He's a, one of the best players in the league, and he's not even in his prime. He's 23 years old. He's... He's younger. He's already been in the league five years is one of the best in baseball and is already younger than judge was when he came into the league. Like he is, he's not comparable to any other previous superstar on the trading block. Cause it's, first of all, it's just ludicrous and stupid that he's on the trading block as it is. It's insanity for the nationals to throw up their hands and say, well, I guess he's never going to agree to sign here when you offered him an AAV of under $30 million when he is, already one of the best superstars in the league and not even in his prime. So they just throw, they just put the 440 million out there to, and it seems like a mega contract and it is obviously a ton of money, but comparable to the rest of the market, it's mm-hmm. not because it's less than $30 million. That's, you know, the length that's, is diluting it. And for a player that young, you don't worry about the length. Exactly. So, I mean, you've got a player who at 23 years old already has two silver sluggers, a world series ring, a batting title, He's going to win an MVP at some point. You absolutely trade all of your top prospects for him. I don't care how highly ranked your top prospect is. Great. Everyone is sold on – everyone in the organization sold on Volpe to the point where they don't, didn't want to go after a Correa or a Seager. But you have a sure thing superstar who is now available to go get and would be under team control for the next you know, two and a half years. I mean, this is a, this is a no-brainer. I'm sorry, but anybody who says they would they wouldn't do it because they can't give up Volpe or Dominguez, that's absolutely in, that's insanity. That would that's I can't even begin to describe how how stupid that is. If I'm I'm just going to be honest. First of all, I would give Washington Somerset the whole stadium with the players <laughs> in it. Just, just and we live right over there, so I, I, yeah, I, I, we live right down the street. I. I when we went to see Voight play, it took me 10 minutes to leave my door. It's awesome. I love it. But anyway, I'll give the whole steam. If they could get Castillo and Soto, I would not mind if they put Peraza and Volpe in each package, one for one and the one headlining one package and one the other, or even Dominguez. This is That would be two years where you're going to have an amazing top three in your rotation, top four this year for sure. And then an amazing outfield. I mean, even if judge were to walk, then you would have Soto and Stanton. Oh, I mean, you, that- you would be, you would be replacing Joey Gallo slash Aaron Hicks with arguably the best on base player in baseball. And one of the best superstars in baseball. That's that is how game changing that would be. I mean, imagine having your fourth outfielder. Like, honestly, like I, I know fans like were riding him early. Aaron Hicks is a really good player, and he's shown the last two or three weeks yeah, that he still fine. has it. Yeah, imagine he's your fourth outfielder. That's in, that's incredible. When you're resting a guy, you're playing Aaron Hicks. That's great. Yeah, and he'd be a switch hit option off the bench too. That's that's huge. That's yeah. That's uh, I don't know. This is this is a no brainer. I just sometimes I think we get so. Nah, wrapped up everybody. in prospects because we're just so our imagination takes off into what they could be your imagination could take off running and never stop and you still wouldn't get to the ceiling that Juan Soto has reached like he is a superstar at 23 years old Volpe like all right so Dominguez the switch hitting outfielder who everyone has you know these high hopes for he crushed a home run in the futures game he could he could turn out to be a, a five-time all-star that's still not what Juan Soto already is and what you know he already is. And as, as for New York, a lefty bat at Yankee Stadium, we've seen him play at Yankee Stadium. One game, he, he had a 500-foot home run. Yeah, that, that was – we had two home runs that game. But, yeah, that's right. The second one was, oh my God, basically hit a – what is it? Uh, George Steinbrenner's face out there behind the right yeah. field bleachers. You know who else is, is – is this Judge's fifth All-Star game? Fifth? No, it's I know it's Stan. So Judge was a Judge was 17, 18 last year. I think this might be his fourth. I don't know. I think it's All his right. fourth. Whatever. I know it's Stan's fifth. 
if the Yankees signed him to an extension, he would become a five-time all-star at some point, I would hope. Yeah. Yankees haven't won anything with him yet. And that's not a knock on him. I'm just saying, just because you have the all-star player, that doesn't mean you win a championship. Right now, they need players who can contribute because they can win a championship this year. So if Dominguez comes up in four years and the Yankee Garrett Cole is old and broken down and the Yankees haven't uh, figured out the rest of the rotation and they didn't keep judge or judges older. And, you know, Torres has left. Well, I mean, you have a five, you, you have a guy who's going to go to five all-star games, but maybe the rest of the team isn't up to snuff right now is the, is the window. It is why this is the team you want to invest in go and get what it takes. Um, you know, look, I would love to, for them to be able to keep everybody. Don't get me wrong. I would really like it. But in order to get the players, you need to play the game and give something up. And and we'll see what happens. And I'm sure that the Cleveland Guardians, the Indians at the time, did not want to give up Clint Frazier. And do you think they care now? They went to the World Series and Clint Frazier, I don't even know what he's doing. Yeah, exactly. It, and... Um, I think this a lot of times this is exactly what prospects are used for. Sometimes their purpose is to you know, deal away to rebuilding teams so you can get established talent. And now the other caveat of this is that a lot of people are going to say, "Oh, why get Soto? Because then you can't extend sign both him and Judge." You know, just let's you can. squash this right now. The Yankees of all teams absolutely can, and it would be relatively inconsequential to their bottom line. The fact is, just are, would they be willing to? push past luxury taxes and incur those penalties all evidence points to no for that so that could be what would hold up something like that but it would never be because they couldn't do it i i and i i gotta be honest if they just go and and this like this annoys me a lot of times in in hockey too i feel like this happens more and it's because it's salary cap sport i wouldn't mind if you traded a bunch of prospects for soto had him for two and a half years and then didn't resign him to a contract where on the back end he's not going to be great if you have judge locked up like that, that's okay with me. Go take your two and a half year shot. And if you're going to invest otherwise, you, you can do that. I mean, but you know, whatever, just go, go get him. It'd be sick. It'd be awesome. We, yeah. We'd be, we, you know, right now I think Yankee fans have some anxiety about the Astros. I certainly do. I think I, I, I if the Yankees play Astros in a series, even if the Yankees have home field advantage to me, that's going to feel very much like, this is probably going to go seven and hopefully the Yankees win. They definitely can win, but it's not going to be like, I'm going in thinking we're the fate clear cut favorite. They got Juan Soto and Castillo that changes quickly. Yeah. Well, I personally think that the package for Soto is going to be so massive that they probably wouldn't be able to get Castillo. At least that that's just my opinion. I don't, I don't think they can do both. Castillo, or sorry, Soto is no going to left. Yeah. yeah, Soto's going to be such an enormous price. And again, I am still saying you absolutely do that if you can. This is this is um, all hands on deck. Like this, you're you don't know if this will ever happen again. A player of this caliber being on the trading block at this time in his career, it's it's unfathomable. It's it's crazy to me that this is even happening, but it is. So the Yankees should do absolutely everything they can to get him. I agree. I concur. All right, good. So um, um, on on that note, would uh, do? Should we talk to talk to Randy about about the captain? Yeah, let's let's talk about the the superstar the Yankees kept around forever and became a huge part of all of our lives. Yes, that is Derek Jeter. He is uh, the focal point of this seven part documentary directed by Randy Wilkins. We had a great conversation with him about the documentary, which you can catch part one of on Monday after the Home Run Derby. So here he is, Randy Wilkins. Okay, everybody, we're joined now by a very special guest, Randy Wilkins. He is the director of The Captain, the seven part documentary series on Derek Jeter, which comes out July 18th on ESPN. Sean and I were able to see part one at the Tribeca Film Festival. It was incredible, and we can't wait for the rest of it. Randy, thanks so much for coming on and talking about the captain with us. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. I I guess just for me, who grew up idolizing Derek Jeter like you and so many other people did, I was so aware of how well-documented his life and career has already been. He was in the New York spotlight for two decades, and it almost felt like every monumental part of his life and career was pretty well known because he was on such a famous franchise and is such a famous face of the game. So I guess for you as the director, 
how challenging was it to kind of tackle this project and, and try to bring a new lens onto Derek, considering how well known he is? Um, I think there were some challenges that came along with it, but I think the one advantage we had in telling this story is that Derek was willing to be open um, about things that he wasn't really open with in the past. So um, he was prepared to open up a little bit to the public and um, let people learn about him beyond just like his career accomplishments and his career as a Yankee. So I knew going into it that this was going to be a different depiction of Derek because he was willing to share himself with the world. And as we all know, that wasn't something that he was comfortable doing um, as a Yankee for 20 years. So, um, yeah, I mean, there were some challenges, but the, the big thing is that he was going to be speaking about it and speaking about it candidly. So when you hear from the man himself, that automatically changes the um, complexion of the project and immediately makes it stand out from all the things that uh, people have, have done to chronicle his career and his life up until this point. You talked with Derek for 30 plus hours on this project. And I think one of the things that also stands out about Jeter through his career is that he was just, you know, so obsessively focused on winning the next one. And as soon as he won one world series, it was on to next year. Did you kind of get the sense all these years later now talking with him for so long that maybe he's able to look back and reflect and most importantly, appreciate what he was able to accomplish and what his Yankee teams were able to accomplish. Cause I think even he himself has admitted that he didn't really get to enjoy it as much in the moment because he was so hyper-focused on winning. Do you, do you feel like that's changed at all now that he's so far removed from his playing career? I think it has. I think it started with the Hall of Fame because he didn't really have a choice but to look back on his career. You know, you know, so, such a great honor forces you to look back at your accomplishments so you understand how you got to that point. So I think that the Hall of Fame is a big inflection point for Derek on a personal level. Um, I think that put him in a position where, you know, in, in thanking people that helped him get there, you, you can't do anything but look back. You know what I mean? Like as, as an athlete, you can't get greater than a hall, being a Hall of Famer. So I think that that's when that process started for him. And I honestly think doing this project has made him do that as well. You know, the reason why he wanted to make this film in the first place is, you know, the Hall of Fame kind of made him realize that his daughters weren't around when he had uh, his Yankees career and he wanted something to document and chronicle his life and career prior to them being in his life. So I think in doing this and, you know, you're, I'm asking him a million questions, he's sitting in the chair forever and the only thing he's doing is talking about himself and like his career and his life. You know, I think that in going through that process and then looking at the cuts and looking at the episodes, I think he really started to realize the impact that he had on his team, on the city, on fans, and also how the franchise had an impact on him and how fans had an impact on him and, um, you know, how it was this mutual relationship on so many different levels. I think he can begin to accomplish, I mean, uh, begin to appreciate what he went through. But I also think it's just his nature not to be the center of attention. I think that there's just a part of him that won't allow him to see him as a star or someone that, you know, was at this like level for so long. So I think he's doing it, but I, I don't think it's, I don't think he'll ever get to the point where he'll fully embrace um, what he's done. You know, Randy, you mentioned, you know, how Derek meant so much to all Yankee fans. And I, I know, you know, you're, you're a Yankee fan. And I'm just curious, like go, before this project started, what did Derek Jeter mean to you? And how did that, um, how did that meaning of, of Derek evolve while you were working on the project with him? Yeah. I mean, he was a source of joy for me. I mean, you know, I, his career started when I was in high school. So in like very important years of my life, it felt like Derek Jeter was there every single day. You know what I mean? And it was like, I know he said this like multiple times, but I think it's true. And I think it's true for you guys as well. Like we grew up together. Like we grew up with Derek, Derek grew up with us and, you know, you evolve into these adults and there was like this one constant in our lives and that was Derek Jeter. So I think um, there was a comfort with that. I think that, you know, somebody in a very like odd and indirect way or somebody you could like depend on, even though you didn't know him or like interact with him. 
And I think now, I mean, I just, I mean, I look at him as a friend, which is like so crazy to say, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's like remarkable to say that um, at this stage of my life, but I, you know, I, I think we're cool. You know what I mean? We're cool with each other. And the thing that I'm like so honored by is that he entrusted me with telling his story. You know, as, as we get into the film, it's very clear that loyalty and trust are very important uh, values to him. And he has a very small circle and he has a very small circle for numerous reasons. And I think to kind of break through that and, and be a part of that, you know, as virtually a stranger from two years ago, um, it's pretty dope. So uh, I'm very proud of that. And I think that that's kind of like where that, that evolution is going. Uh, that actually dovetails just beautifully into my next question. I was going to say Jeter's obviously famously guarded. We touched on it before. Um, and I'm sure collaborating on a project like this requires trust between a director and the subject. How do you go about establishing that trust and familiar familiarity with Derek? Um, I think you have to be your authentic self. You know, you can't really hide who you are. I think you have to be honest. I think that you have to be authentic. And I don't think that that's true just dealing with Derek. I think that that's true in life. You know, uh, I'm presenting my authentic self right now with you guys. So I think when someone can pick up on the vibes that you're being yourself, this is who you are, you're confident in yourself, um, you're not putting up a front, you're not going out of your way to... Um, act differently because they have a certain stature in the world and you treat them as a human being, you view them as a human being and you interact with them that way and not interact with them as a star. I think they pick up on that and they feel that it's genuine and allows a trust and a rapport to build because they're, they realize that you, you don't have an ulterior motive. You're not trying to get something out of them. You're not trying to like use them for something. Um, and I think that goes a long way in building trust and letting someone know that you're there for, quote unquote, the right reasons, you know, and um, I think that that matters, especially with someone like Derek, who has come across a lot of people that I'm sure tried to take advantage of him or use his stature to their benefit. I have no interest in that, whether I was doing this film or not, like, that's not who I am as a person. So um, I think that had a lot to do with us building that trust. Very cool. Um, on an episode recently of uh, Jesus and Mero, uh, I believe are in the documentary, um, which is cool. And I know you directed a commercial for, with them, right? Yeah. Um, but Jeter commented that Yankee fans watch every single day and we're all Yankee fans. We all definitely do that. How do you approach capturing who Derek Jeter was for non-Yankee fans or even non-baseball fans who weren't as fortunate as we all were to, to take it all in every day and really kind of communicate what that long and, and day in and day out um, process was like? I think the first thing is that you have to go into it being mindful that there are people who are not Yankees fans or baseball fans. You know, I think if you went into it thinking that this was just for Yankees fans, you're limiting yourself and you're not creating opportunities for people to feel involved in it. So for us, um, it was very important that we struck a balance where Yankees fans who were very familiar with these things would be engaged and like learn things that they might not have known, but also making it accessible to people that either don't like the Yankees, don't know about the Yankees like that, don't know baseball, don't really follow baseball, where they're brought in. So I think a lot of it is just creating a drama and attention with the baseball-related stuff so that it's engaging. You know, you guys saw the first episode in, like, the 95 ALDS. Like, there might be people that have no idea who the Seattle Mariners are. You know what I mean? But, like, I think we did it in a way where you can get that it's competitive and there are highs and lows and they're, you know – this like great run of incredible positive emotion. And then all of a sudden there's like a collapse, you know what I mean? So I think in the way that we presented the baseball, we treated it like, like dramatic moments in a script or like emotional beats in a script so that people can be engaged with the emotion and don't feel like they have to know the ins and outs of baseball or Yankee history, you know, it's drama and tension and conflict and ups and downs and people get that intrinsically. So that's the way that we approached it. And like you mentioned, you're you're a fan. You grew up just like us, idolizing Derek and idolizing the Yankees. So does that personal experience as a fan help shape this documentary at all? Was there any challenges of trying to – or were there times where you felt like you had to put your fandom to the side as an objective interviewer? Just what was that experience like as a fan documenting the life of arguably the most 
famous player in the history of your favorite team? Oh, I put my fandom to the side right when I knew I got the gig. You know, my responsibility first to this is to be a storyteller, you know, and and I have a very um, strict and clear uh, set of values and intents as a filmmaker, you know, regardless of whatever story I'm telling. So for me, uh, if I'm doing a documentary, I want everybody to be able to speak their truth, whether it's critical of the subject or supportive of the subject, like, I want people to share their perspectives and their view of things the way that they see it. Like, I'm not trying to tip the scales. I don't want my fandom to get in the way. And I certainly don't want my fandom to get in the way in, in the way that the story is told. So, I mean, there's seven episodes. There are multiple points in the film where Derek is criticized on camera, you know, and like Derek kind of has to not defend himself, but engage with criticism that's thrown his way. And it's, and it happens in multiple ways. It's both on the field and off the field. So the fandom has nothing to do with it other than informing me about important moments in his career, important moments uh, with the Yankees. I think it was more of a, an asset in terms of like research and building out like a story structure, but I always believe that footage is, is queen. So wherever the footage is going, that's the story we're going to tell. So within that footage, I have to make sure that I'm as objective as possible. You know, I'm not like rooting for Derek in the film. I'm not like rooting for the Yankees in the film. That happens when we're watching the games. So it's two different arenas and, and I respect that. And that's how I approach it. You also mentioned in the Q&A after the Tribeca premiere that you also weren't out for any kind of like you know, gotcha questions when it came to Jeter. And obviously we've, as more of the documentary series has been shown, there've been clips of Jeter talking about his rift with A-Rod and things like that. But aside from those parts, when you were talking with Derek, was there any other maybe unexpected points of his life and career that you noticed he was maybe surprised that he maybe wasn't thrilled with talking about or something like a, a memory of his career that maybe was more difficult for him to talk about than he might have initially thought as, as you said he was willing to open up for this documentary and give a more unfiltered look and you talked to him for so many hours were, were there any moments where you felt that maybe he was you know surprised by whatever emotions might have been brought up by talking about a moment in his life uh yeah I think um at one point I asked him what his worldview was and how did his upbringing as a biracial black man kind of influence that and how it influenced the way that he wanted to be seen on the field and off the field. And I think that that was a moment where he really didn't connect the two things prior to me asking him, you know, I think, he lives his life and it's true for all of us. You know, we live our lives a particular way, but we don't necessarily like step out and have this like larger view of how we're going about our business or how we look at things or how we interact with things. So as someone that was observing him because I had to, I think asking him that question threw him off because he doesn't have to think about it. You know what I mean? It's just like, this is how I live my life. This is how I go about my business. So I think that that was one moment where I wouldn't say he was stumped, but I think he had to like really think about the connection. I think he realized that that, that was the case. And even then, I think he had a different difficult time reconciling the two to a point where he could like succinctly make the connection and articulate it. Um, I think that there are moments that happened in his career that he is very clearly not over. Like he's not over losing the 01 World Series. He's not over losing to the Red Sox in 04. Um, and I think that they're like, the emotions are still like very raw to him. Um, he's not a super emotional guy, so he's not going to like be crying, like all demonstrative. Or this, that's just not his nature. But you could tell that like some of those losses like really, really gnawed at him. And like, he didn't forget them. He won't forget them. And it has like a very specific like impact on how he feels about things. So that's like one thing that's, off the field that I think he showed emotion and was in like, was really raw. I mean, he was, he was obviously open and candid. And then there's like one on the field or two on the field things that were like, it really was clear that he felt a certain way about how things went down. 
Yeah. Oh, one and oh four. Hurt, hurt. Terrible, terrible, terrible. He didn't even want to talk about it at one point. I was like, nah, man, we got to talk about it. We got to keep going. <laughs> I go back and forth, like wondering if I could have undone one of them and, and which one would it have been. I always, I always wonder that in my head, but. Which, which one? You know, I would probably say actually I would, I would win in 01. I know the 04 thing was against the Red Sox, but to have four in a row with that group who, you know, we all grew up watching and like Tino Martinez was, was my yeah. guy too. So to get Tino an extra one, that would have been, that would have been cool. And um, I'll probably lose my Yankee fandom card for saying this, but there was something relatively poetic about how the Red Sox broke the curse mm-hmm. and having Red Sox family members. I saw how much that meant to them. Yeah. Um, so uh, I'll probably not be allowed back in Yankee Stadium for saying yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I'll take a one if I if I could choose. What about you? I would take 04. Yeah. I think uh the thing about 01 to me is that they did so much for the city just by going on yeah. that run that like that's the one where that's the one World Series where I'm like, okay, they didn't win. You know what I mean? Like, I don't really have a visceral reaction to it. I'm just appreciative that they went on that run. And, like, there are memories mm-hmm. that are so, like, vivid in all of our minds that I appreciate. You know, so it felt like because of what was going on in the world that it was okay. Because it really wasn't about winning a title. It was about, like, helping the city and, like, distracting the city and inspiring the city. Oh, four 4 is just terrible. Like, yeah. I mean awful like who they lost to how they lost they should have won like eight different times and to like see the like pitching matchups just like go in the like wrong direction <laughs> as the series went on it was just that was embarrassing terrible I, yeah not nah, oh four that i would change that one sense um actually you know like like you said like oh one has so many good memories go back and even still watch that world series dvd even though you know it it has the or vhs at the time even though it has has the bad ending but um you know in in some of the other work that you did in 86 to 32 um you employ the use of animation the last dance which was produced by the same team obviously with different director uses a very unique time structure and how they tell the story and only watching the first episode, it seems like a straightforward format. Did you consider playing around with any sort of more unique um, storytelling ideas or did you just keep it straightforward? Nah, straightforward because I mean, at its core is a guy who never talked to the public candidly before speaking candidly with the public. And if you do things that like distract from that very core tenet of the film, then you're kind of like, giving everybody a disservice, you know, like I don't want to distract people. Uh, I don't want to jump around in time so that you, you're potentially thinking about like the time jumps and where we are in the timeline. You have to like kind of reorient yourself when really you just want to hear from Derek, you know what I mean? And sometimes as a filmmaker, I think you can do too much to kind of spice things up when it's not necessary. Like people are here to, interact with Derek. They're not here to interact with me and like see me show off, you know, and like use like different uh, approaches to tell a story. I think that's appropriate um, for different stories and films, but for this one at its core, it's Derek opening up and you want people to just sit there and engage with him. You know what I mean? So like, that's why we have the consistent blue background. Like we just wanted to minimize things so that the focus is always on what he's saying, what people are saying about him, what they're saying about the Yankees, what they're saying about the world. We didn't want to do things to take away from that because it's really the rare opportunity where Derek is candid and vulnerable with the public. And I feel like that should be the star of the show, not me like showing off like different structures of how to tell a story. So um, you've told the story of Derek Jeter now, which is going to come out in the captain premiering after the home run derby. Um, it's still on Vimeo, I believe, the Roy Jones Jr. story that you tell in 86-32 about the Olympic robbery. Um, is there any other athlete story that you would be interested in, in, in telling? Uh, Lewis Hamilton. You know, he, uh, I think he has a remarkable story. I think the rise of F1 on a global uh, scale makes it a very um, engaging story, and I think a lot of people would be interested in it. Um, but yeah, Lewis Hamilton would definitely uh, be one of those people on that list. I don't want to 
I don't want to make sports films for the rest of my life either. You know, like there's things that I'd like to talk about and delve into that have nothing to do with sports. I mean, I'm appreciative of telling this story and um, telling Roy's story. And I'm sure I'll tell a couple more sports related stories, but I try to tell the stories that can go beyond sports, you know, so it's not just like a, a recollection of like these great sports moments and we're just reliving them and that's it. Like they have to have some depth to it and kind of like some expansiveness to make it worth my while. Um, but I think someone like Lewis Hamilton uh, would accomplish that. So yeah, he's, he's one that comes to mind. All right. One more for you, Randy. I think, I feel like the legacy or the perception of Derek Jeter is so established from his career. You know, he's the ultimate competitor. He has ice in his veins, always says the right things has been, you know, insanely driven since he was a kid, thanks to a great upbringing from his parents, all these well-known things. But after talking to him, how is how has, if at all, your perception of, of Derek changed now that you have a different relationship with him? It's not as much fan and idol. Like you said, it's he's a friend. So how has your perception changed? Um. It's just a realization that he's a really complex guy. He's a nuanced guy. Like there's, I know that the perception is that he's vanilla or he's one note. Um, and that's what happens when you intentionally like protect yourself from the public, but he's a really complex guy, you know, and there's a, there's a lot going on with him. He's very perceptive, incredibly intelligent, um, very aware of things, uh, he's just a really compelling person. You know what I mean? And, and part of me, part of me is happy that he went about doing uh, or handling the media the way he did, because I benefit from it in all honesty, by telling the story. I mean, you know, you're providing something that people have never really seen before, a side of Derek that you haven't seen before, but in all honesty, as a Yankees fan, as a baseball fan, as someone who is an admirer of great talents, regardless of whatever industry they're in, a part of me does wish that he was able to share that a little bit more with the world and that it didn't take all this time for him to do that because I, I, I think he's remarkable in so many ways and he has impacted so many people and inspired so many people. But I think um, he could have challenged people more in how they treat others and how they view the world if he opened up a little bit more. And I totally respect and understand why he did it. But I just have so much like respect and, and um, reverence for the type of person that he is that I think people, I mean, people will just be in awe of him regardless of their fandom or, um, you know, how they viewed the Yankees. He's, he just has so much to offer and, and to be around him and to see that um, was a privilege. But I, I think, you know, we we did our best to balance it out too. You know, a lot of the things that make him who he is are some of the, the, the low points in his life and the challenges and conflicts that he has, you know, and he's not perfect. We don't present him as perfect. You know, it's, uh, you know, I think it's an honest depiction of who he is, but through that, I think so many people can pick up on things and, and learn from it. And, and he's learned from it, I believe. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, he's just a, a really complex, impactful guy, you know, and, and I think if you meet him, you walk away a little different, you know, like you can tell that you're around somebody that has uh, presence. So, and that presence is made up by a lot of different things. And I think we capture that in the, uh, in the film. And we can't wait to learn more about him when the captain premieres on July 18th after the home run derby. Randy, thank you so much. All the best success to the documentary. Really appreciate your time. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks again to Randy Wilkins. A great conversation about what is shaping up to be a great documentary series. We loved part one when we saw it at the Tribeca film festival premiere and talking with him. I, again, it's, i I've said this before, I was kind of skeptical of a Jeter documentary series just because of how guarded he's always been. But part one certainly made me even more excited and talking to Randy now and just talking about how much Jeter opened up and, you know, let let Randy in and they built that friendship and, and trust has certainly got me excited to hear Jeter talk about, you know, some of the greatest moments of our lives as sports fans through through his lens. Yeah, absolutely. I um 
you know, I was, it was awesome talking with Randy. I'm really excited to watch the rest of the documentary. And, um, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, you should also listen to 30 with Murdy and his interview with, with Randy as well. Um, Sweeney got to see a few more episodes than we did. And it well, sounds he's like, in the documentary. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and it, it sounds like as they get more down the, the early two thousands into the A-Rod stuff, it's going to be very revealing compared to what we've seen. So I'm really excited. We're going to be actually reviewing, well, recapping or just reacting to each episode, which is I'm, I'm really excited to do that. I love I love especially this year. I love talking about the Yankees. But, you know, as, as two guys who, who were kids when when Jeter came up, um, you know, just it's amazing to revisit that. And even, um, you know, my first my first memories of watching games were in the pretty much in the 96 postseason. I remember a few games before that, but um, so Jeter's really all I've known. And it's really cool to watch like the end of the end of the Mattingly era and the beginning of the Jeter era. So the, the era. So it's uh, it's pretty it's pretty exciting. I, I can't wait to, to talk about it and to see more and more from it. So I think all Yankee fans should be should be looking forward to it. Absolutely. We are very much looking forward to it. We're also looking forward to the second half of the season. We'll be back later this week to preview what's to come, including getting started with a bang with a doubleheader against Houston. Hopefully the Yankees can you know, get healthy, get right back at it after that. We've got Sevy that's on the men now with a, uh, what was it, a mild lat, lat strain? Yeah, he shut down for two weeks. Castro's a little long. Castro's been good. I mean, I think they're gonna they're gonna maybe miss him more than you think, especially if Luizaga and and, and Chapman can't get going. But um, yeah, Castro had some. He had his control problems early on, but he he's turned into a solid relief arm. And Sevy, we'll just wait and see. He uh, had that lat problem in 2019, and that sidelined him for six weeks. That was a grade two strain, though. So hopefully, this isn't as long. Hopefully this could also be a silver lining that he gets some rest on his arm because he's trying to pitch a full season for the first time since 2018. So, but uh, yeah, latch strain for Seve. Hopefully he gets healthy and hopefully everybody enjoys the all-star break, the home run derby. I know we will be. Well, I mean, who would you give the belt to in the the last series? Oh, good point. Um, and uh, so, in, instead of doing a belt, let's pick a home run derby winner. Good, good one. So I picked Torres last week. That was obvious. I, I'm giving it to Carpenter. I have I, to. I, I was going to say Carpenter, Tyone, um, but Carpenter's more fun. Yeah. And I would have picked him if he was in the home run derby, but um, I'm going to go. Yeah. I, I think it would be so cool if Pujols won. Um, I'm going to go. I'm going to say Alonzo gets the three peat. I was going to, I was going to say, I was just going to say that exact thing. I think Alonzo's going to get the three peat. I'm taking him too. Um, because that's the I, I agree with you. Okay. All right, cool. Is that okay? Is that is yeah? That it's, right? unanimous. it's unanimous. Yeah. It's unanimous. We'll, uh, we'll we'll see. see. It should be entertaining though. It's it's a good field. I think Stanton the, ev- in it would have been awesome, but it's still a really good field. Yeah. Ever since they've went to the timer, it's been I've loved it. Like I I mean I always like the home run derby. I love home runs, but um, ever since they went to the timer, it's been so great. And there's been so many great moments. Like the the judge year was incredible when Harper won in Washington, it was the mm-hmm. huge comeback. It's, it, it's been, been so much fun. So I'm really looking forward to it and uh, well, hopefully we'll uh, have a, have a good, good break and come back and hey, we we're signing off as the best team in baseball in the first half. So what more could you want? Yeah. Can't complain. So hopefully hope everyone sticks around for the second half of the season and catches us after the all-star break. Remember to rate review and subscribe, all that good stuff. And uh, yeah, we'll see you after the break. Let's go Yanks. And thanks to Randy again for the interview.